We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. You keep calling yourself a white peopleologist. Yes. <laughs> Which is very funny. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Like, is that is that real or is it a joke? It's both. So, <laughs> of course. It is, like, I think people think it's funny, but... It's based on my philosophy that you cannot understand what racism is and how it affects society by learning about black people. Like, we'll learn about black history and think we're learning about racism. Nah, you you just learn about black people. You're learning about the people who racism affected. If you really want to learn about racism and white supremacy, you have to study white people. Right. Because they, we black people didn't perpetuate it. We didn't create it. We didn't even create participate in the creation of the idea of race. Right. So to understand that, you have to understand white people. You have to study white people. It's a ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. You're a phenomenal person. I mean, legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. My man Michael Harriet is also at the Grio, as am I. He also has a new book out called Black AF History, which is an extraordinary telling of black resistance and black history and black family throughout the early century that we were here. And he's got an amazing podcast called Drape to Maniacs. Michael is brilliant. I love talking to him. He's become a friend and I love that. So let's get into it. It's Michael Harriet on Touré Show. I love Black AF History Mm -hmm. book. It's fantastic. I think one of the big takeaways is that black resistance to oppression to white supremacy has been happening since day one and it's been happening in myriad ways right and it's not just running away or nat turner killing people it happens in day-to-day small little ways that we never we don't memorialize Mm -hmm. yeah i think so i think um one of the things that is to, to me is important to understand is like how we resist in a system that, well, if you get caught or if at the end you might end up dead. So, you know, telling stories of not just like people grabbing machetes and chopping off white people's heads, but resisting and like slowing down work, yeah, complying, um, running away. Like we talk about the Underground Railroad, but we don't talk about the people who just ran away who'd never heard of the Underground Railroad or didn't know where to go and just, like, existed in swamps and Mm. in the woods and whole communities. So I think all of those stories of resistance 
to everything. And the most interesting thing to me is when you think about those people, right, the most astonishing thing is when, like, somebody like Harriet Tubman who would run away from the most brutal brutal form of human subjugation ever seen on the planet and say, I got to go back, though. Oh, my God. Just think about that, like risking your life, like how your many freedom. people, like Frederick Douglass, all those people who escaped and then went back. And I could helped. see going back for my family. Could I go back for others? Yeah. I don't know. Which is a testament to her power, her will, who she was, her character that she went right because she was going back for people. Yeah, she she random people. That's correct. It is. I don't even know if brave is the word for it. Beyond brave. Yeah. And to be like, oh, this is what I do now. And then to go back to South Carolina in the Civil War, the bloodiest war ever seen on the history of the, on the face of the earth, and just help them Mm. end slavery. Mm. It's it's to me all those kinds of resistance are just interesting to me. Forrest Joe is my favorite character in the book tell him about Forrest Joe Forrest Joe was a uh he was a person who was enslaved and ran away from the Carroll plantation in South Carolina and formed a maroon one of these maroon communities a community that existed had like built homes and had food stores and he was a menace though he would raid that he would you know feed the people by raiding nearby plantations he would uh, take others, free other enslaved people. Kind he, of a Robin Hood. Right, right. He was a Robin Hood. And the interesting thing about him is that the legend of Forrest Joe was kind of created by white people. Yeah. Um, that, like, they were they couldn't kill him because he had melted down lead he stole and created a bulletproof vest. He really created a, the first bulletproof vest. Right. And uh, they they found it when uh, they raided the the Maroon Village, uh, and he was known to wear it. But the white people said, "Well, he's impervious to bullets." They couldn't fathom that he had figured out how what they the quote was to create a vest through which no ball could well pass. Um, but they created this mythology because, like, there's no way he's smarter than us. So he must be a witch who's impervious to bullets. Uh, his legs must be extra long, which is how he gets away all of the time because, like, there's no way he's more agile than us. So he had created a, a intelligence uh, network on plantations where other enslaved people was like, hey, you don't want to go over there tonight because they're waiting for you. And it was, uh, it was, and this happened. He was in the news, like the top headline from 1820 to 1823, like three years. They were crazy. He was, he was running them crazy. And he seemed like he could disappear. Right. And then he went on to the governor of South Carolina's <laughs> plantation in broad daylight <laughs> and just start busting caps. <laughs> and it was like, we got to do something. And then what they the thing that they had to do was to create what is essentially America's first police municipally force. funded police force. Mm. So when we talk about this, you know, we talk about this idea that slave catchers uh, became police. Mm. 
we can trace the lineage to Forrest Joe. And the Pineville Police Association was created to chase down Forrest Joe. Mm. You touch on something that I think about a lot. That when we talk about racism, a lot of the time white people feel like we are physically superior to them. That we are better athletes, better dancers, better in bed, more in tune with our bodies, all these sort of things. And we are intellectually lesser than them. That's what they think, right. right? And they think we are not as smart as them, right? And they feel like they know that, right? So between those two notions is sort of American racism. Right. But that notion was kind of fueled out of necessity by the Catholic Church, right? You can't have a religion that talks about mm-hmm. grace and, you know, liberty and all of the things that we believe about treating your right. treating others the way you want to be right. treated. So you have to have you have to justify it by saying, "Well, they aren't like us; they're animals, right?" And that is the the justification they used for this nation building project of human subjugation, race based slavery. But what's interesting is a lot of what they did contradicts that ideology and that philosophy they didn't they went specifically and found people who knew how to grow rice right like they mm-hmm. knew those engineers they knew those agriculturalists and horticulturalists they when you think about blacksmithing the american form of blacksmithing is an african art that they went they knew exactly where to go to get blacksmiths uh cowboys right um was a uh, Af- you know, every climate that exists on the face of the earth also exists in Africa. Mm. So they went to get men and women who knew how to uh, raise cattle and drive cattle in Africa from the plains of Africa. And so all of these things, all of these, inter- we always think of it as labor and never talk about the intellectual property that was ex- mm-hmm. ex- uh, extracted using violence or the threat of violence. And that's the thing, like, we flatten out slavery until, until a white man standing there with a whip making you work. And not all of, like, there were no climates like the climate in South Carolina mm-hmm. in Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how could they even fathom building houses through which the air flowed and would cool them off? The Africans those, told them that. The African architects that told them that. There was no cotton in Europe. There was no rice in Europe. There was, so I was. Uh, so you're saying they are awash in examples of black or African intelligence. Right. And yet denying the intelligence of black and African people. And not that they discovered, not just discovered this talent, right? They would go back to the places to get them. Oh, we need some rice growers. We're going to the place that eventually became known as the rice coast of Africa or the gold coast because gold, the rice was the gold, Mm. right? It was America's first edible cash crop, Mm. right? Uh, And so it contradicts that notion of like that intellectual inferiority because they knew what these Africans could do. I, I remember I was commissioned to write this piece on the plantation tourism in Charleston. And 40% of enslaved people came through Charleston. And a woman on the tour asked about, you know, how they knew how to 
grow rice. And she's like, the tour guide said, well, it had they had been doing it for in Africa for centuries. And then she asked, it was like right after what they called the 100-year flood, and it happened a couple few years ago in, in South Carolina. And they said, how, well, how did this 1,700-acre plantation survive? And she said, well, the levees and the dams that the Africans built 300 years ago still work. So whenever we know a storm is coming, we just flood the plantation. And then when it dissipates or when it passes... We let we unflood the plantation. They had built that to build uh, to grow rice, but it still works three hundred years ago. So these weren't like big strong people. These were engineers and architects and people who knew how to do things, and they knew exactly where to go to get them. Mm. You're touching on something too that I think about a lot. We talk about cotton, and we talk about enslaved individuals and the value that America was able to put on them in the slave trade. It is the slave trade that allows America to become a global economic power. That is what transforms us from a small new nation into a global economic power. And in, it, 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 is, it is critical to talk about slavery as a crucial ladder for the entire American economy. Right. So – and, and even though we talk about the free labor, because any like even today, the biggest business cost for any corporation is the, the the labor cost. But we don't talk about the other things. Just by reducing human beings to chattel, that allowed a huge economy to build. Right. So those first Americans, before, you're like, no, no, it, it was always South Carolina. <laughs> yeah, man. But one of my premises. That I try, I always say is that if there is a black America, South Carolina is its capital. All black people have roots in South Carolina. Like, uh, you know, 90% of the slaves disembarked in South Carolina. One estimate is that, I mean, 40% of the enslaved people disembarked in South Carolina. One estimate is that 90% of enslaved people spent some uh, time in South Carolina, whether it was a little bit of time or a lot of time. And so, like, when we talk about American history, we usually talk about, like, Philadelphia, Boston, and the Northeast. And when we talk about, you know, black people, we talk about the South because that's where we were. But I think it was important to understand, like, if you're from Mississippi, then if you go a couple generations back, you're from South Carolina. First of all, (laughs) because Mississippi and Alabama were part of the Carolina territories until it was split up. Um, and the other thing is, like, like no, no slave ships dropped off in, in Mississippi, right? They were coming to South Carolina, and then they were going to Mississippi sure. and Alabama through there. So South Carolina to me. And then the other thing is because South Carolina was majority black, the brutality and the laws of slavery were South Carolina laws that other states copied. And that's important to understand to how we even understand racism in America was created by the white people in South Carolina. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... 
Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. You're talking about the resistance that's happening all the time. We are under a different attack now, but it remains persistent and powerful and traumatizing in its own way. Are we resisting in the same way now? I think we are. I think uh, forms of resistance come in so many forms, right? And I think that what we see now when when we look at resistance is an effort to one to get white people to understand what white people what what white people have been doing like to contextualize history, but our resistance like the Black Lives Matter movement is no different than the civil rights movement For sure. and which is no different than the anti lynching movement sure. which is no different than the abolition movement right uh and these movements evolved with the times, right? Uh, like we can't. I mean, there are no machetes to pick up uh, right now. But when you look at what the Panthers did and what you know groups did in the 1800s and the 1500s, the forms of resistance were like all black people have ever done is try to be free, and the quest to be free in this country is dependent on the times, 
Mm-hmm. It's dependent on the generations of black people and what they experience and what they know and how they relate to the oppressors who restrict their freedom. And I think that today that freedom and that uh, that that uh, that striving for freedom looks different because it's not necessarily slavery, it's not necessarily lynching, it's not necessarily uh, desegregation or the ending Jim Crow. It is ending the stuff that is not on paper, right? Like, there are no segregation laws, so we we can't petition Congress for that. We have to petition the public. We have to petition the large majority of people instead of saying, hey, we want to change the Constitution or we want to have a civil rights law, or we want to make voting, get our voting rights. It's a little bit different because white people and the oppression tactics have evolved too. Yes. Right? Like like voter suppression now isn't a law that says, you know, you have to be able to count these jelly beans in the jar. Right. uh, Or you have to pay a poll tax. So as the oppressive tactics evolve, we had to evolve with it. Yeah, it seems a lot harder to fight against mass incarceration and, uh, you know, the the vast economic difference between what black families have and what the average white family has. And even just to get people to understand that this is true, right? Because people always go, well, there's Oprah and there's poor white people in Appalachia. So, like, why? Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing it's hard to get people to understand is where that comes from. Like, because— before emancipation, why weren't prisons majority black? Why were prisons majority poor white people until the 1870s, right? When you talk about mass incarceration, when you talk about mass incarceration, why all these like vagrancy, what, you know, evolved from vagrancy laws? And like, why aren't the things that white people do as, as restrictive under the law as what white people as what black people do right and so to even conceive and to remember what where this comes from is a heavy lift in and of itself right because sometimes you know like if you if white people knew about redlining and where it, and how it segregated their communities right like they'll ask why are black communities more violent and not wonder why there are black communities. Like, what is that? Why Why is there a black neighborhood? That is something that white people created, right? For sure. Right. And they'll ask, you know, well, why don't black people, for instance, well, you've heard this, value education, mm. but not wonder, hey, has there ever been a second in the history of America where black people had access to equal education? You know, I think about that a lot and how taxation Education is the only place where taxation is applied locally. As a New Yorker, I pay taxes to pay, to live in New York. Those taxes fund roads that I will never drive on, parks that I will never visit. But when it comes to education, I am funding the local school. Right. So if you live in a depressed community, the local school will be shitty. Right. And if you live on the Upper East Side— the local schools, the local public schools is going to be the shit. Right. And the other thing about that is that the idea of 
how that funding comes, you know, you say taxes, but it's mostly property taxes mm-hmm. that's based on real right. estate that they segregated. Right. Right. So most of education, if most of education funding comes from a system that is unlike every other system in America, every other taxation system in America, it's a system that property taxes only fund education and like some local municipal municipal laws like, you know, uh, how we restrict the business district versus the residential area. But they don't fix roads. They don't depend on anything. Nothing depends on them except the schools. And you have to wonder why is that? Well, that is the legacy of segregation because these local municipal boards were divided by during the segregation era so people could have more control over their communities. Mm. But we don't ask those questions. You keep calling yourself a white peopleologist. Yes. <laughs> Which is very funny. Well, what is what does that mean? Like is that is that real or is it a joke? It's both. So <laughs> of course. It is like I think people think it's funny, but it's based on my philosophy that you cannot understand what racism is and how it affects society by learning about black people. Like, we'll learn about black history and think we're learning about racism. Nah, you're not. You just learn about black people. You're learning about the people who racism affected. If you really want to learn about racism and white supremacy, you have to study white people. Right. Because we black people didn't perpetuate it. We didn't create it. We didn't even create participate in the creation of the idea of race. Right. So to understand that, you have to understand white people. You have to study white people. And being raised in a black community... Um, and homeschooled, by the time I got to be around black, white people for extended periods of time, I realized, oh, I'm going to have to be intentional about understanding these people who I really don't know anything about. And right where I found out about it was, so it was two things. One, when I started going to school, right? I, so I was supposed to be in the fifth grade. And the first day of classes... And, like, for the first week of classes, they would have me. I wouldn't go out to recess. They would take me into a room and they'd make me do all these tests because they had no idea, like, where, you know, I had never taken standardized tests before, so they didn't know what kind of classes. I, so I didn't have a history in the education system. So on the last day of that first week of school, they brought me in a, uh, into the principal's office, and it's like a bunch of white people were in there. My mom was in there. And the assistant principal who, like, lived down the street from me, um, and he was black, and he knew my family all my life. And he, he, they asked me, like, how did you do it? And I was like, well, do what? He's like, did somebody give you the answers? Or, like, they, they were kind of also, like, accusing him of giving me the answers to these standardized tests. But he didn't even know it when he was called into the meeting. So he starts laughing, and then my mom starts laughing, and then, like, they were like, oh, you don't know, like, who this guy's family is. Like, oh, you think he cheated when he just beat y'all tests. And so they skipped me up a grade and put me in what they call, you know, the gifted programs um, back then. Because your family is very educated and interested in education and reading, so they had already— taught you a lot of things that are on the test. Right, exactly. And so they put me in this all-white class in a grade ahead. And one day, a friend who 
they put another girl in there who became one of my best friends. And it was time for social studies, and we sat beside each other, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's time for uh, the, cla- the part of the class that black people didn't exist until, like, 1900s. Mm. And the teacher heard it because she was, my friend was laughing and slapped me in front of the whole class. The teacher, corporal punishment. Sla- no, just slapped just, me. Just she, hit you first, in she the told face. me to apologize. I said, I don't understand what you want me to apologize for. Like, I didn't, I could not conceive of what I was supposed to apologize for. And so I didn't apologize, and she slapped me in front of the whole class. But that wasn't what did it. Well, after school, my friend, she was telling me, my sisters and her brother and the, all the people who walked home with us about it. And when she got to the part of what I said, all of the people, all of our friends, like, gasped, like, I can't believe you said that. And my sisters and I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> and that's when I realized I had to understand white people. They understood white people, and we didn't. That's why I became a white peopleologist, because I knew I had to understand it. I mean, unless I want to get slapped every day. But Wait, what is it that you—what do you understand about white people? What, what is a big sort of takeaway that, that helps you put them in context? Well— one of the things is that first black people have a subconscious deference to whiteness. We kind of change the way we talk around them. We change the way we, we talk to them, right? Like we don't talk to white people how we talk to each other. We, we take a little aggressiveness out of our voice, right? Um, we joke a little bit less. Um, and then the other thing is. We talk about race less. Yes. Right. When we're alone, we talk right. about race all the time. Right. We don't put it in their face. And the other thing is white people are very unaccustomed to being told they're wrong. You have to learn how to couch. Like, black people will say, you lying. <laughs> well, you don't know the fuck you talking about, right? We'll, we say that all the time. You so stupid. Yeah. And that's, like, think about that, though. Like, white people are very unaccustomed to being told that they're wrong. And we defer to that. We figure out ways to either avoid telling them they're wrong or how to tell them they're wrong in a way that they can find palatable and acceptable. And I had to learn that intentionally instead of subconsciously like everybody else already seemed to know. I had to be intentional about learning how to act around white people and how to understand how whiteness really affected my world. It could get you slapped in the middle of class. It could get you accused of cheating when you was just doing what they told you to do. Right. Right. So you had to, so I had to understand white people, not me, not race, not the concept of inequality. White people is the, the root of all of that. So what else do you understand about white people through your study? You know, I learned that they don't, like use washcloths. Um, what? You know, white people don't use washcloths, <laughs> which is always surprising. Like that, they still have. Why does wa- that matter? Hmm? Why does that matter? It's just a, a cultural difference that is interesting to me. Like, don't you think it is interesting that, like, one of the I guess one of the only remnants of black privilege in the world is that every hotel still has washcloths, and white people don't use washcloths. <laughs> 
Well, let me think about that, though. But there's no such thing as black privilege. Yeah, there's no such thing as black privilege. But I guess it's a... Uh, you uh, could use it like... like I mean, you're talking about using a washcloth in the shower. You could use it in the sink and, like, wipe your face with it, right? It's, it's easier than using a towel. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Like, right? I can, and then you're not using the washcloth the way that you were talking about in the shower, yeah. right? Yeah, but just it's. I think it's amazing that washcloths are still in, in hotel rooms. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and, and this is like a joke, but I actually researched this, that like white people really don't season their food. <laughs> um, but it is, it's also true, right? Like other cultures, like if you go to an Indian restaurant or there are uh, – Caribbean restaurant, there are specific seasonings that those sure. cultures use. Part of that <laughs> is because our diet was so limited that sure. and restricted that we had to find a way to make this stuff that we were eating taste good. But no, you see, if we think about Indian, we know how that's going to taste. Mm-hmm. If you think about black soul food, you you know you know what like what would <laughs> what would white food taste? What does white food taste like? Scones. Um, what's what's up? What else? White porridge, like white, like I think feel like white people. <laughs> but it's, but but porridge is the whole dish, right? Right. Like we could make porridge, but we gonna put some 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 uh, some flavor in it. Some yeah, some gravy, some, some this and that, right? Yeah. You know, the the Indians would put curry in it. They'll make it their own. Okay, European American, make it your own. <laughs> Right. How, what, what are you going to do to the waffles or the porridge? How are you going to make it your own? Nah, like, they, they're not, right? <laughs> like, even with rice, right? You think about rice. Like, there's that chapter that I talk about, like, the different rice dishes and the war between perlo and bog. But those are things, like, we found a way to make rice flavorful. Right. That was the whole right. re- concept of bogs and perlo. Like, white people just be eating rice. <laughs> like, they be... I, so when I was in college, 
I had a roommate and I like went home with them for for like a weekend. <laughs> they had rice with but just butter on it. Like what? So wait, when we talk about this, we talk about this to mean we are uh, innovative and mm-hmm. creative. We are we are inherently flavorful. We know how to make a way out of no way because mm-hmm. they got the bullshit parts of the pig and they knew how to flavor it up and like make it a hearty. Okay. What does the flavorlessness of white cooking say about them? I don't know if it says anything. So what is the absence? Like, can you quantify the absence of something? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> for, for real. So so think about this. Like, they eat, they, they create food. Everybody eats food out of necessity, right? Sure. And... Other cultures found ways to make it enjoyable uh-huh. and flavorful and 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 art. Yeah, absolutely. And white people's like, nah, we just gonna eat some porridge. <laughs> like we just gonna drink some ale. Right? I, I mean, don't know what that means. I mean, we we are talking specifically about white Americans, right? Because like France and Fra- Italy it. in particular right. have a f- amazing food culture. Yeah. Right. And I mean, Germany has a food culture. We may not think of it as great food, but there is a food culture in Germany. Right. right, right. But like you and I could have an amazing time eating our way through France and Italy. Right. So one of the. And maybe Spain. Yeah. Uh, Well, the French uh, food culture is pretty relatively new after colonization. Right. Like you got to think about this, right? Like all of the. This is interesting to me because, because again, I, like I'm interested in this. I've gone down these rabbit holes. Like all of the French desserts things. Like French are the kings of dessert. Supposedly, there wasn't no sugar until they came over here to <laughs> to <laughs> to, America. To, to to the Caribbean and then to America. <laughs> the French superiority with desserts is because they owned Haiti oh. and supplied the world with sugar. Oh. So. Even what we attribute kind of to the French. Think about this. This is going to blow your mind. You know, tomatoes don't grow natively in Italy. Okay. That was a result of colonization, and tomatoes came after that. So all of those Italian dishes and what we think of as Italian food. That's new. Were relatively new. It's not like old, like, you know, what we eat a lot of like the rice food, the rice dishes, the perlos, the Indian foods, those go back yeah. centuries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like they you can't even trace the lineage of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But a lot of what we think of as even the good white culture's food comes from colonization and them taking a little bit from over there and a little bit from over here. Why do you think white people now feel a need to perpetuate white supremacy? I noticed when Trump was running the first time, you see a lot on CNN. They go interview Trump voters and and the Trump voters would say without being prompted, this is our last chance. Uh, and, And some of them would further explain what that meant in that they all know that the the end of white the era when when black and brown people outnumber white people in Amer- and Asian people outnumber uh, white people in America is coming within our lifetime. Yeah. It should be around 2040, yeah. somewhere around there. Um, 
Uh, depending on what you're talking about, right? Because, you know, like the American school system is already majority non-white. If Yes, if you are under 12 or something like that, yes. then it's more, right? So that, that generation is already there growing. So is it a fear of us? Is it a, it, 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 I think Ta-Nehisi is the one who talks about whiteness is all that it means is dominance. That's the only thing that it connects to. So it's a couple of things, right? One, it's what I call white culture. Okay. Um, so, and I, I I taught a class called race as an economic construct. Well, I didn't use philosophy or history. Right? I used economic terms, not money, but supply and demand. So what white culture is, first of all, whiteness created, I mean, white people or Europeans created this pan-European ethic that became whiteness, right? Like they tie the French and the Greeks under, um, in the 1700s. They tied themselves to each other because, you know, the, the English were kind of despised and the Greeks were different than the Italians, but they managed to tie all of that to this pan-European ethic. And a lot of that was a culture of scarcity. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you were a Germanic tribe, where we got the word bar- um, barbarism or, or barbarians from, right? They conquered out of necessity. It was warlike out of necessity. If, like, you know, the ground was made of rocks, they couldn't grow stuff. So the way that they uh, fed their people and the tribes and themselves was to expand their territory. It was, you know, warlike. And so their focus in technology was, was evolving warfare um, and, and methods of warfare. So when they met the Asians, they took fireworks and said, oh, we can use this to make guns. And when they make like so that culture of scarcity scarcity necessitated the idea that we have to dominate and control and uh, mm. and conquer mm. right now that this is what they're talking about in exterminate all the brutes right amazing documentary on HBO exactly it's it's based on that economic it's based on that idea um, I think it is an economic principle and so what that ideology creates is if you are able, if you have a culture of dominance and conquering, you believe that your ability to conquer other people, other cultures who weren't concerned with dominance, right? Like if you come to Africa, like when the white people showed up to Africa, they didn't kill them because it was like, wait, there's some more people. Right when they came to America, the in the Native Americans, the the indigenous people fed them because they weren't like, what's this dominant stuff? Like, it's more, just more people, different kinds of people. We'll welcome them in. We'll feed them. We'll teach them how to grow some stuff. We'll teach them. Hey, don't drink that water that you pooped in, because they were. <laughs> but what their culture told them was that our ability to conquer and dominate these people reflects our superiority. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that is, so part of it is that culture of dominance that evolved from that culture. That that remains in the sort of DNA or lizard brain of whiteness that dominance No, well, I don't even know if it results, it it, it survived in the lizard brain. It's what they built into this society. Mm, Right? White dominance. White, White dominance. Right? Like, Manifest destiny. God wants you to own all the land. 
is that same culture of dominance, right? Gentrification is just micro-manifest destiny, is micro-colonialism, is what gentrification is, a culture of dominance. If I move here, I get to change the stuff. I can tell the people above me, turn the music down. This is part of what you're, like, Karening is asserting dominance. Right. And there isn't... There isn't a parallel culture of black Karening because that's not how we move in spaces. But there's all these there's constantly white Karens. Right. And then the other aspect of, of that is the idea that a lot of white people don't know. And that's the point of this book, Don't right? know. History, don't know about other cultures, about that there were cultures that didn't need to be, you know, warrior-like, didn't need to conquer, right? And so they think that their ability to just take this land and to take Africans and to take the whole Caribbean is because of their superiority instead of, oh, like nobody else wanted to be at war for the rest of history like that. And when you think about that, the idea of black history in American schools is relatively new. That's what a lot of people don't understand. Well, it goes back to like the 70s, the 70s when we started the 60s. talking about African-American, yeah. Afro-American teaching. Yeah. Black and, studies. Yeah, Afro, black studies. Yeah. yeah, that black studies movement is, uh, you know, late 60s, really late 60s, 68, 69. Yes. But really the, the 70s, 70s. Yes. Right. So the people, the teachers who taught us in schools, yes. they never sat in a classroom, one that taught them about black people. And many of them never sat in a classroom with black people. So a lot of what we hear about wokeness, about CRT, is because they don't know things. They don't know what black people did. They don't know what white people did to black people. And they don't know the history of this country except the mythology that they've been told. So when they see this world getting fair when they see this world getting equitable, they think we're trying to take the things that they have dominated and conquered and redistribute them to the world instead of everybody doesn't have that culture of dominance like white people do. There's an old, not old, maybe 15 years old Harvard study. White people see race as a zero-sum game that they are losing. Yeah. Yeah. So scarcity mentality that if we give jobs, leadership, whatever, money to them, that's being taken away from us. There's there's, there's like a university of Pittsburgh study where they got like third graders and they got them into a room and they said, hey, if you were living in – one of the questions was if you're living in a community and outsiders come – and you don't have enough food, what do you do? Mm. And most, it's like 80% of the white children said, you just can't let them into the community. And the rest of the people said, oh, well, then we got to grow more food or we got to eat less food, right? And that's like, if they're, everybody knows that they we won't be hungry if we eat a little bit less and then everybody can flourish. Mm. But 
there is a weirdness to the idea of, hey, we got to just let them starve because mm. I don't want a little bit less. <sighs> Ask everybody who comes on the show, what does being black mean to you? So, to you. I think being black, and when I say black, I mean, you know, the culture and the history of black Americans. I think it means being being tied to the art, the culture, and the story of America that was created out of nothing. When I think about being black, to me, the essence of being black is... I am part of a people who came here with nothing, not a language to speak, no possessions, not even a family, and built all of the music, the culture, the art, the history, the economy of what became the biggest superpower in the world. We did that. We built these communities. We built institutions. And if you look at black people where they are now, knowing in a very short period of history where we came from, nothing, Mm, mm. absolutely zero, it is the greatest story in the history of the planet. Mm. There is nothing that has ever been done to a people that hadn't been done to black people in mass. And to look at where we are, not just survive, but to look at what we built, what we did, that to me is being black, and that is the greatest story that's ever been told. Mm. And if you ever told it, it almost sounds like fiction. Yeah. Yeah. It almost sounds like Forrest Joe. Yeah. Right? Because you cannot believe what black people did. It is impossible to believe what we did in reality from where we started from. And to me, that's what being black is, like being a hero so unbelievable that they got to find a way to not tell that story. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, Got an amazing podcast. Yeah. Draped to Maniacs. Mm -hmm. I love that. Uh, It's... um, it's just a really alive, dynamic, living vision of history and telling these stories and should be part of curriculums. Yeah, I, I, when, I, when I started creating it, I wanted it to be different than anything like people who listen to podcasts have ever heard. I think we achieved that. And it's like I would like to take credit for it, but it ain't me. Like I am a small part of the genius that it is like we have sound people who spend time like dreaming up ways to tell the story and you know voice actors and it's very alive in that way lots of different voices lots of different ways of doing right a lot of podcasting there's it's sort of a flat sonic experience and this is a very dynamic sonic experience right and One of the things that I'm proudest of, first of all, is that it is created and, like, no hands touch it except black people. But the other thing that I I love is that 
I really can't describe it because it is not there, there are no comp- comparables. Right? Like I always say like imagine if the Chappelle show met the 1619 project. That's about right. Yeah, yeah for sure. And the thing that I love about it is like I am a fan of it because if I even like I'll see the script and I'll write the script and I'm still excited to hear it at like it's crazy how what the rest of the people do to it to make it alive. Like I like that expression that you use that is very alive because I never thought about it, but it really is. Like it starts with an idea and it you know, it's really alive. The idea of hearing Ida B. Wells as a mm. as a battle rapper. Mm. Or, you know, <laughs> like ideas like that. Like it is very interesting to me. And in the in the show and in the book, you have a really interesting way of mixing your sense of humor in with the story. And, you know, black history is not PG. It's not even rated R. It's quite often rated X. It's traumatizing. You know, I remember the first time I took my kids through uh, the 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 Black Smithsonian in D.C. National Museum of African American History and Culture, and you know, my daughter's crying. You know, learning about some of the stuff that happened. You know, my son wants to see the lynching picture, but he doesn't. So I like covered his eyes and then I let him see it for like two seconds and then covered his eyes again, which is what he wanted. Like, uh, you know, but it was like, wow, that was a lot. Yeah. Like, and you know, just going through that whole thing, it's a lot. And, and so you injecting humor, it leavens it. I'm also like, do I want it to be leavened? I mean, as a creator, I do, but then as a, you know, when we talk about the history, I'm like, it should be hard. Cause that shit was very difficult to live through. Yeah, but the idea that serious things can't be funny, I would argue, is also based on a white construct. Have you ever been around black people and not laughed? Right. At a funeral? Right. At horror things? Right. Like, all of that. Like, the American form of comedy comes out of, came from black people, came from slavery, came from our ability to laugh through pain. And so I don't even think I inject humor. I just don't leave it out. I t- do it like black people do things. And there is no need to be serious about this serious issue if I'm going to do it like how black people do it. Like, you know, you've been at a funeral and somebody walked in wearing a crazy hat or a, a, a old suit or what they had on at the club last night. We're going to say it. And <laughs> I think that's what the podcast does. What is the key to being great at spades? The ability, first one, experience. The ability to count, uh, you know, in 13s. <laughs> because the multiplication of, of spades is, is 13s and 4s. And to have a partner that you can communicate with uh, telekinetically. <laughs> See, that is a big thing. How much you can communicate with your partner. You're not really supposed to. Yeah, but see, that's what I'm, that's the problem. You, you say like telekinetic, people, but we know, right? You know, like, you mean like, you know, I can say a little thing or I can now, give a little wink and they kind of know. If, you, if you've played space enough with your partner, you know 
you can tell they are saying things to you with the cards. With the cards. That's totally legal. Right. And that's the higher level that you should be able to. But some people be kind of like, yeah, wow, it's was really cold two days ago. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, can't yeah. do that. So that yeah, that, that, that's cheating. But you, the people who need to do that, don't know what they're doing. Like, I don't even worry about those people because you don't need to talk across the board, especially if you have a partner where you're used to. Like, if my partner plays uh, four of spades on the second book of the hand, I know what he's trying to tell me. He doesn't have to say what anything. Is, what is he trying to tell you? He's trying to tell, tell me that he either has the king, he has the next uh, club, or that he has very few clubs and he's going to be cutting them. So he's getting rid of them. He doesn't have to talk to me. He's like, you know, I am almost headed to the club. Or I ain't going to the club tonight. <laughs> right? He don't have to do that. Right? Because I know what he's saying when he plays that. Because And it's not just like playing with them a long time. If you play with somebody who knows how to play spades, you know what they're saying when they do certain things. Right? And so... That is the key, like to counting and experience. Because if you get good, then you know when some when you're playing with somebody else who's good, you know what they're doing. You don't <laughs> have to cheat. And also talking junk, but you got to talk junk. Right? But you got to talk junk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much to Michael for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. Maybe this show could help. You can find me on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next week with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.